Welcome to Commune. This is Jeff Krasnow. Our mission is to spread the ideas and practices of the world's greatest teachers. We do that through online courses, a weekly newsletter, and this podcast. On the show, I excavate perennial spiritual questions like what is consciousness? What is the nature of reality? How do we live with purpose? Reality is infinite. We experience a narrow bandwidth of it unless we transcend our senses through meditation. We delve into practices and modalities that can heal trauma and help us thrive. Mastering the art and the science of forgiveness is necessary to move through life. A miracle is a shift in perception from fear to love. We explore the spiritual traditions that help us acknowledge that we are all connected by a power greater than us. We are all indeed individuals, yet we need to find collective and communal solutions. We build a sturdy bridge between personal wellness and societal well-being. It's only when you get people who are pursuing their dreams, living their truth, and feeling good that we can actually move the needle of society forward. To learn about our courses, our community, and everything we do, visit us at onecommune.com. Okay, my guest on the show today is Dr. Stephen Gundry. Dr. Gundry did his pre-med undergrad studies at Yale and received his MD from the Medical College of Georgia. In 1985, he was invited by Loma Linda University School of Medicine to serve as professor of surgery and pediatrics and eventually served as chairman and head of cardiothoracic surgery. Over the next 16 years, Dr. Gundry and his colleague Leonard Bailey performed more infant and pediatric heart transplants than anyone else in the world. He has operated in more than 30 countries including charitable missions to China, India, and Zimbabwe. In 2001, Gundry met a so-called hopeless patient suffering from heart disease. By making some unusual changes in his diet, this man made a complete turnaround, and Dr. Gundry was eventually able to give him a quadruple bypass surgery that has kept him alive to this day. Now, this experience was the inflection point in Dr. Gundry's career. He began to study nutrition, nutrition deficiencies in the standard American diet, and which staple Western foods were actually toxic to human health. In 2002, he founded his own practice at the International Heart and Lung Institute, where he began to treat patients with a new dietary philosophy and began seeing transformative results. This has led to a series of successful books, including The Plant Paradox, The Longevity Paradox, The Energy Paradox, and Unlocking the Keto Code, which is the subject of our conversation today. Now, in this episode, Dr. Gundry and I discuss the ketogenic diet and what's happening when the body enters ketosis. Dr. Gundry unveils the real power of a special fatty acid cell called a ketone, and why it is integral for longevity. We explore what is happening in our mitochondria, the energy-producing factories in our cells. We talk about specific foods, phytonutrients, and antioxidants that contribute to mitochondrial health. 
And there's a lot more in there about polyphenols, fermented foods, wine, and why stressed out plants might be the most nutritious to eat. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. So without further delay, here's my chat with Dr. Stephen Gundry. Okay, Dr. Stephen Gundry, great to be with you. Hello, Jeff. Good to see you. I want to just express a, a brief note of gratitude. I would say so much of my baseline knowledge about uh, the microbiome and intestinal permeability, inflammation, heart disease, and, and many other topics are grounded in your work. And uh, I'm very confident I'm not the only one, um, but your books particularly longevity paradox and the plant paradox have been staples that I return to over and over. And um, I'm quite confident that this, that your new book, Unlocking the Keto Code, will join the prestigious pile on my uh, nightstand. So before diving into some of the new exciting findings um, that you unveil um, in Unlocking the Keto Code, uh, I'd hope to build a little shared foundational knowledge. Uh, for our conversation, I suppose maybe just start with what are the core principles uh, of a ketogenic approach to eating and what are some of the primary benefits that many people believe are conferred by uh, adopting such a diet? Yeah, you know, there's nothing new about the ketogenic diet. The, the term was actually coined almost 100 years ago out of the Mayo Clinic. And the, the ketogenic diet was uh, developed to treat uh, children with intractable epilepsy. And this was long before uh, phenobarbital or dilantin. And they found actually, they found that children who were with, who had epilepsy, who were starving. And a lot of these kids were starving because they had intractable seizures and actually weren't able to eat. And, but they found that when these kids didn't eat, uh, their seizure activity diminished dramatically. And then when they were fed, seizure activity occurred again. So uh, people, particularly at the Mayo Clinic, uh, said, gee, uh, must be sugar that's somehow doing this. And if we could deprive them of sugar, uh, and protein, maybe that just a very, very high fat diet. And the original diet was 80% fat, 10% uh, carbohydrates and 10% protein, that these kids might duplicate the effect of what we saw in starvation. And sure enough, uh, that happened. And they realized it was the fact that it was ketones that were produced during starvation that seemed to have the miraculous effect. And this became really the standard of care for children's epilepsy until uh, dilantin and phenobarb came about. And at that point, the ketogenic diet for kids pretty much fell by the wayside. And maybe as we go along, it had a resurgence in fairly recent years when an MCT oil-based diet for children's epilepsy was introduced because what they had found with the ketogenic diet, the original one with children, 
is that these kids, yeah, it was great. They didn't have as many seizures, but they didn't grow well. And they actually had some bone loss. And so when they looked at, well, can we get the same effect by using a completely different oil, medium chain triglyceride, as we did with a really you know, high, primarily saturated fat diet. And lo and behold, they found that with maybe just a 50% fat diet using MCT oil in moderate amounts, they could reintroduce quite a significant amount of carbohydrates and protein into these kids' diet. And uh, so the MCT oil-based ketogenic diet actually made a resurgence. And that was one of the things that caught my attention when I really wanted to dive into ketogenic diets. But to answer your point, so the traditional ketogenic diet is about an 80% fat diet. Now, there are just so many versions of a ketogenic diet. And, yeah. you know, it, it's, it's kind of silly, the number of versions. But the, the fundamental underlying principle is normally, if you have what's called metabolic flexibility, and we should really talk about that, you should have the ability that if you stop eating sugar or carbohydrates, that within a few hours when that runs out as a fuel, you should instantaneously switch from burning free fatty acids released from your fat cells to burn as fuel. And in theory, that's a great idea. And in practice, that's a great idea, except, as I point out in the book, that sadly, 50% of normal weight individuals have no meta metabolic flexibility. 88% of overweight individuals have no metabolic flexibility. And 99.5% of obese individuals have no metabolic flexibility. They cannot make the switch to burning fat as a fuel instead of glucose as a fuel. And so, so many people embarking on a high fat diet that restricts carbohydrates and even proteins often fall flat on their faces because as much as they try to eat basically fat and avoid carbohydrates, they don't have the ability to actually take fat from their fat cells and actually convert them into ketones in the liver, which can fuel the brain partially. And I see so many patients just kind of crash and burn. And that also explains why after a month, 60% of ketogenic dieters leave a ketogenic diet because it's so miserable. Yeah, it seems like it's a very hard diet to sustain over time. So I'm curious, what are the primary factors that lead to that metabolic inflexibility, um, that inability to kind of switch seamlessly between um, burning carbs or, you know, fatty acids and then that are synthesized into ketones, et cetera. Why, why are people having such a problem with that? So I, th I think the simplest way to look at it is that normally um, when we would find food, uh, which may not be, been very often, um, we use insulin for two purposes. We use insulin to usher sugars and proteins into cells. 
but we also use insulin to convert any excess sugar or protein into fat storage. And so insulin, we now know, is the fat storage hormone. And it took years for physicians to realize that giving people with type 2 diabetes, who we didn't know had elevated insulin levels, and giving them insulin shots actually made them fatter and fatter and fatter. Mm. And I can tell you the number of patients who I've seen through the years that they're well-meaning physicians still put them on insulin and they get fatter and fatter and fatter because we're injecting them with the fat storage hormone. But here's the cruel rub is that the higher our insulin level goes and the more resistant our cells are to letting insulin get sugar and protein into cells. Insulin is basically a salesperson that sells this to our muscles. Mm-hmm. And if our muscles are full, because we haven't used them, the muscles say, no, uh, go away. I'm not listening to you. And insulin keeps rising and rising. And I go through this in book, trying to get the cells to take the food. Okay, so now most of us have what's called insulin resistance. We have an elevated insulin level. But here's the cruel rub. Insulin is a fat storage hormone, but When insulin rises and you're trying to store fat, which would have been a great idea when we found that buffalo or the the berries, insulin doesn't want fat to come back out of fat stores because if you're trying to put it in, it shouldn't come back out. So the, the cruelty of all this is when you have an elevated insulin level and you stop eating, even though your fat should come out of your fat stores to start powering you up, insulin prevents it. And what's fascinating to me is we can see people who it may take us a couple of weeks, a month, several months for their insulin levels to lower enough that they will start releasing fat from fat cells. So that's one of the really cruelties of trying a ketogenic diet when you're metabolically inflexible or insulin resistant. Mm, That's fascinating. So it's not uh, just as simple as flipping a switch. It's just, okay, I'm going to go on a low carbohydrate diet that's going to lower my glucose levels. So automatically that's going to lower my insulin levels, put me in this hypoglycemic state, and that will trigger the release of fatty acids from triglycerides and the subsequent synthesis of ketones. It's not quite that automatic, it doesn't sound like. No. And in fact, you know, even Dr. Adkins knew this. Um, And there was, you know, the the Adkins blues that we're talking about or the keto flu where you, you know, you, you would think that, you know, okay, eliminate carbohydrates and off we go. And it just doesn't happen. The other thing I think that people have finally begun to realize is so much of the work in ketones and ketone bodies has been done by George Cahill and his uh, student, um, Dr. Owens, and also from Dr. Beach from the NIH. And particularly Dr. Beach may have gotten this on the wrong footing. Dr. Beach realized that ketones were produced when we were starving. 
And one of the things that he proved was that ketones are a way of getting into the brain when free fatty acids, which are actually big molecules, can't get past the blood-brain barrier. So Veach proposed that ketones were actually a miraculous fuel to keep the brain alive during the times of starvation, when you know, all of us were really kind of designed to survive starvation. And so Veach took it one step further, and he started to say, well, they're such a great fuel for the brain that I think they're a great fuel for every cell in the body and that we should basically always try to be starving. And he even made the cover of Time magazine, basically saying that the, the basic nature of a human being is to starve. Well, I'm sorry, that isn't our basic nature. <laughs> uh, but what he didn't know, and thanks really to Dr. Kalen Owens, is we know now, using humans, that even at full ketosis, the body will only get 30% of its energy production out of ketones. The rest is going to come from free fatty acids. But what's even more remarkable is that supposedly ketones were a super fuel for the brain. But in fact, even at full ketosis, the brain still wants and needs 30%, 40% of its fuel from glucose. and that's a problem. Yeah, I want to underscore that point because that was a. Um, uh, I got my highlighter out uh, at that moment when I read that in in the book, um, because of course ketones has a really good marketing team on board, and there's this popular notion that this is um, this super fuel that can cross the blood brain barrier and which is and true few, which is true and and fatty acids cannot um which is true and it can be this hyper efficient source of fuel for the brain and you know everyone talks about oh well the brain is mostly fat etc but then i read in your book that the brain needs glucose and i underlined that a number of times and i, I thought that was a uh, I think that that really untangles a lot of, of popular myth right now. I think I've had a version of my ketogenic diet version in all my books for the last 20 years. And really when uh, people look at my ketogenic diet in my books, they actually see a lot of carbohydrates. And the, and yet they'll go on this particular program and they'll still see results. And everybody goes, well, this is not a ketogenic diet. And I said, oh, sure you it is because it works really good. And, you know, the, the young woman who I talk about in the first of the book on my ketogenic diet, she basically couldn't stop losing weight. And right. we kept giving her more and more carbohydrates. And eventually, uh, you know, she finally stabilized. But she wasn't eating, you know, an 80% fat diet and was still, you know, getting all the effects of a ketogenic diet. I think when I, again, when I, when I wrote this book, I was in the energy paradox, my previous book, I was trying to explain how ketones made people an efficient fat burner. 
And that's what I believe because that's, that's the orthodoxy. And I like to document things with research. And so I would find papers to look for papers to back me up. And when you actually look at papers, looking at how (laughs) ketones work, you actually find that, wait a minute, uh, the exact opposite is true. And if you think about it for a second, being an efficient fat burner, efficiency means basically getting the most out of an amount of energy, right? Um, And I use the example of a Toyota Prius, if we consider gasoline as fuel and let's just call it fat so if i want to get the most out of my gallon of gas i would buy a toyota prius and i'd get 50 miles for a gallon of gas on the other hand if i wanted to really waste gas i'd buy a ferrari because i could probably go eight miles in the ferrari and as i mentioned in the book now there might be other reasons i'd want a ferrari uh, but just for the analogy, a Ferrari is a really inefficient machine, and it wastes gas. So if I'm an efficient fat burner because I'm on a ketogenic diet, and fat has nine calories per gram, and carbohydrates and protein have four calories per gram, I ought to gain weight if my if I'm becoming an efficient fat burner, and that doesn't make any sense. So there has to be another reason, and that's unlocking the keto code. Right. Okay, so I think this is a a good time to talk a little bit about energy production in the body um, and the mitochondria, and you use this absolutely hilarious and very fun metaphor in the book uh, with the nightclub analogy, (laughs) the mitoclub. No, Mito Club. Yeah. I love it, and and you're um, you're persistent with it. You really do carry it through, and I I had more than a couple of laughs about it. Um, so typically, when we're eating carbohydrates and insulin from the pancreas picks up glucose and ushers it to the cells, and everything's functioning well, the cells are using uh, glucose through cellular respiration and the and the Krebs cycle, et cetera, the electron transport chain to create ATP. In the absence of glucose, the body seems to be able to do that also with fatty acids or with ketones. But where is that all happening? And can you just spend a little time talking a little bit about the nightclub of the mitochondria? Um, And I I think that'll set the stage nicely for really what seems to be the reveal moment of why ketones are so integral and important. Yeah, so um, so the electron transport chain, which uh, was proposed by Sir Peter Mitchell, who also finally won the Nobel Prize, uh, the electron transport chain, uh, simplistically, I call a nightclub that has an entrance on one end of the nightclub and an exit on the other end of the nightclub. And twenty uh, somethings, which will which will call energy substrates like glucose, like proteins, like free fatty acids, uh, enter this nightclub. You know, I call it the Mito Club, and it's the hippest, hottest place in town. And they go there for one purpose and one purpose only, and that is to couple with oxygen. 
And if they couple with oxygen, then they leave the nightclub via a one-way revolving door. And this is the process of leaving the electron transport chain coupled uh, produces ATP, literally very much like water going over a water wheel um, you know, producing energy. And there's only one way out. And in this nightclub, the, the electron transport chain is, is really changing energy levels of electrons and protons. It's getting them excited. And we laugh uh, in longevity that, you know, the only purpose of life is to move an electron from one level of charge to another. But I digress. So, <laughs> so things, and, and believe it or not, this club is hot, it's steamy, it's sweaty. There's so many hormones going on. There's drinking and all for the purpose of, of getting this coupling going. Well, that's all well and good. But the process of coupling uh, has a lot of side effects. There are fistfights. There is a lot of drunken craziness. And we actually have bouncers in the nightclub. And people probably know of at least one of the bouncers. It's glutathione. The other bouncer, which is a surprise to almost everybody, is melatonin. And yeah. it's a surprise to almost everybody that we only have two antioxidants that actually work in our mitochondria, glutathione and melatonin. But we'll digress for a minute. In the process of looking to couple up, electrons will also, just because everybody's rowdy, will couple with oxygen by, if you will, mistake. And we now know that that coupling process produces free radicals, produces reactive oxygen species. And while some of those are pretty good, they make it a pretty interesting place to be, a lot of them we now know is one of the major processes that damage the club, the mitochondria. And pretty soon, you know, you've got beer all over the place and broken chairs, and it's no longer the hip place that you want to be. So that's how the electron transport chain works. And part of what glutathione and melatonin do is to tamp down this unwanted coupling, if you will, and try to get oxygen to couple with protons and make some CO2 and head out the door. What was fascinating to me when, when Peter Mitchell proposed this, a lot of very smart chemists, chemists said, no, wait a minute. It, the process of making ATP using this system, using mitochondria, you should take one molecule of glucose and always get 32 molecules of ATP. Every time it's a chemical equation, and <laughs> yeah. you know, and Peter Mitchell said, Well, wait a minute, you know, you guys are all running these experiments with isolated mitochondria, and guess what? You know, sometimes we're getting you know, 28 molecules, yeah, of ATP. right? Yeah, yeah, and, and what's happening to those guys? So, it wasn't until really when his theory was accepted that almost simultaneously, and he got the Nobel Prize, I think, in 1978. Almost simultaneously, uh, three re researchers said, you know, he's right about all of this, but what's missing is, well, where were these, why weren't we getting 32 molecules of ATP? So they proposed that 
there were literally emergency exits along the electron transport chain that were controlled by what were called uncoupling proteins that could literally open the door of an emergency exit and let protons escape from the club instead of going all the way down through the revolving door. And they proposed that these escape hatches, and there were five of them, would be why in all these experiments, you never got to that magic number of 32. And so when I learned about uncoupling proteins, uh, and I started putting two and two together, it, I realized that uh, a great amount of the calorie potential to produce energy was automatically being wasted and net out of the electron transport chain. And in fact, I didn't know this, but 30% of all the calories that we eat never make it into ATP production. They are wasted out these emergency exits in the mitochondria. So now you go, well, wait a minute. If you're designing an animal, that's really stupid because now he basically has to eat 30% more food just to produce the energy to stay alive. So what's the deal? Well, one of the deals is in the process of letting these protons escape from the glove, they produce heat. And mm -hmm. we happen to be warm-blooded animals. And believe it or not, even cold-blooded animals depend on this to keep their body temperature. And so heat production is an important part of this. But what became apparent, and we'll go into DMP in a minute, is that you could waste a lot of calories by opening up these emergency exits. You could literally do a caloric bypass. Well, it just so happens that ketones aren't some phenomenal fuel. It turns out that ketones are a phenomenal signaling molecule that actually, among other things, actually do three things. They tell mitochondria to waste fuel, to open up these emergency exits, which on the surface seems really stupid to do because ketones' original purpose was to be produced during starvation, to keep the brain kind of hanging in there until food arrives. And it would make no sense if you're starving to death to waste fuel. And then I stumbled upon an obscure paper by Dr. Martin Brand. And the paper was published in 2000. I recommend it to anybody because it's actually an re easy read. And the paper is simple, uncouple to survive. And that's the name of the paper. And he said, in extremists, at all costs, the mitochondria has to protect itself from death. Because if the mitochondria dies, it doesn't matter what happens to the muscles, it doesn't happen to anybody else, you're screwed. So the mitochondria should do everything in its power to protect itself. So stepping back for a second, producing energy is really costly. It's really damaging the mitochondria. The club becomes a mess. So if we 
actually waste some of all these people entering the club, this place calms down. So that's number one. Number two, it's okay to waste energy, but you got to have a certain amount of energy production or things flutter to a stop. So it turns out that ketones and other substances actually tell mitochondria not only to waste some of the stuff out the side door, but to make more of themselves to share the workload. Now it really starts to make sense. Because, okay, you're protecting each individual mitochondria by having it work less, but you're simultaneously adding more mitochondria to take up the workload, each at a reduced work. Uh, I'll give you an example. Let's say we have a dog sled, since it's now winter, and we have a two-dog sled pulling a guy, and they're doing a lot of work. If we add six more dogs, we now have an eight-dog sled. Each of those dogs now has to do about a quarter of the work that the two guys did, but you're going to get, you know, you're going to go as fast, probably faster. So it actually makes sense to have a program to make a lot more mitochondria when times are tough. And for instance, most people have heard of brown fat. Brown fat is brown because it's so packed with mitochondria that it's literally brown. And brown fat, it turns out, is actually one of the keys to lifelong health. And brown fat produces heat. And we can actually see it. So mitochondria protect themselves. They build more of themselves called mitogenesis. And the third thing that happens from ketones is it literally instructs mitochondria to repair themselves, to do the maintenance that's needed to keep them in tip-top condition. And so as I talk about the Mito Club, uh, the Mito Club owner actually wants less people in his Mito Club to a point where it's place to be, but he doesn't want to lose those customers. So he builds more Mito Clubs to uh, take up the slack. And so like you say, I carry the analogy to its final end. <laughs> yeah, you do a great job with it. So I, I want to um, just reiterate a few points to make sure that I understand and, and the listeners understand as well um, about ketones as a signaling agent. So it seems like there is a relationship between ketones and these uncoupling proteins that um, create sort of a, a valve release almost. Um, yeah, that, it's like a pressure cooker. Yeah, yeah. literally like a pressure cooker. Yeah. Um, that have certain beneficial impacts within the mitochondria, which seem to be um, that the mitochondria within the process of producing energy of ATP also produces what you what you called reactive oxygen species, or what I think most people know as free radicals. Free radicals, yeah. And um, and they kind of have this counterpart of antioxidants like glutathione and, and melatonin. And there's chemical reactions between going on here between these two things and electron exchanges and, and whatnot. But free radicals can be very dangerous to mitochondria. Uh, they can damage it and in some cases even trigger, I believe, apoptosis, which would be the destruction of the cell. <laughs> so it Correct. seems like the ketones play a very important role 
there in not only the triggering um, cell repair or mitochondrial repair, but also from inhibiting what could lead eventually to apoptosis. Is that a fair understanding? That's a fair understanding. That's right. And uh, uh, go ahead. Yeah. And, and then there is a byproduct, which is thermal, um, which is heat, which I'm very curious about as it pertains to um, hydrotherapy and cold therapy and the body's need to up to to upregulate to stay in this Goldilocks zone. Maybe we can get there because I, I know that you talk about that a little bit because there's other ways uh, to trigger mitochondrial uncoupling that you address. It's not just ketones. But ketones is a is a major focus. Um, and then the last piece is that uh, ketones also seem to be a signal for the mitochondria to replicate for my. Uh, what is it called? Mitogenesis? Mitogenesis, yeah. Yeah. And maybe you could just actually address how important mitochondria, mitochondrial health as a general indicator is for well-being and longevity. Well, you know, there are, there are a number of theories of aging and chronic disease, but I think with each passing year, the mitochondrial theory of of aging gets more and more traction. And that is that the eventual damage to mitochondria uh, becomes so great that you're right. Once mitochondria is damaged to an extreme extent, you can actually trigger the entire cell to literally explode and die almost like the Death Star, you know, in Star Wars does. <laughs> Yeah. And in the last book, The Energy Paradox, one of the interesting things about that, which is a little off the subject, but fun, is the mitochondria are essentially engulfed bacteria that we, they, they carry a bacterial DNA signature and their actual wall has bacterial signature. And we don't like bacteria, uh, at least in us circulating. And there's a fascinating theory, it's more than a theory, that when mitochondria die and the cell explodes, you throw pieces of mitochondria into circulation, into the lymph, and our immune system goes, holy cow, you know, there's bacteria in us, and, it, you know, we need to go and attack this. And it, it's one of the theories, the mitochondrial death theory of inflammation. So I think there's some there's some real lots of reasons to be really interested in keeping mitochondria as as healthy as we can be. One of the other I think startling things is that if you look at super old people, 105 years in age and up, they actually have the most uncoupled mitochondria. They have the highest levels of mitochondrial uncoupling protein. So you go, holy cow, you know, look at that. Uh, there's, on the same subject, you know, there's the, the uh, theory of living hypothesis that uh, basically says uh, the, the more it costs you to make energy, the, you know, the worse. So that the theory is, well, little small animals have a really high metabolic rate. And they don't live very long, whether it, whereas big animals like an elephant 
live a long time because they have a very low metabolic rate. And that that theory of aging uh, has a lot of lot to like, except for birds. And birds don't follow that rule. Uh, birds are in general small. Uh, a hummingbird in captivity can live 10 years and has one of the highest metabolic rates, you know, recorded. A parrot can live 80 to 100 years. And when you look and say, well, what's the deal there? They have a really high metabolic rate. It turns out they have incredibly uncoupled mitochondria. So they're burning a ton of fuel, but they're not damaging their mitochondria. So they're doing literally a caloric bypass. Wow. That's fascinating. Yeah, that's yeah. amazing. That's amazing. I was just reading about how the birds uh, were one of the few species to survive the last extinction um, just um, because of the way their beaks evolved and that they could actually avail themselves of seeds and they didn't really need photosynthetic life, um, et cetera. So birds, <laughs> let's hear it for yeah, the bird, birds. Yeah, you know, there, there, uh, there are a link with dinosaurs, you know, and, and more and more yeah. we're we're realizing they're modern dinosaurs <laughs> that you're right made it and it yeah. may be uh it may be because of their uncoupled mitochondria in retrospect wow okay so i can't uh talk to you and not talk about the microbiome and, and our gut buddies so what do um what does our bacteria in our gut and the products that they create, postbiotics or metabolites or short-chain fatty acids, um, what's the deal there? Is there any um, relationship between uh, our gut and our, and our mitochondrial function? Yeah. So uh, short answer is the mitochondria are sisters to the mitochondria in our gut. And they're sisters in, in many ways. We inherit our mitochondrial DNA from our mothers, and we actually inherit, normally, our gut microbiome from our mothers. And so there's a now proven communication system between the gut microbiome and our mitochondria. And it was conjectured for a number of years until people actually started to measure it. And so this is a, these are postbiotics. So everybody, probiotics are friendly bacteria. Prebiotics are what these friendly bacteria want to eat. And when you give them prebiotics, they in turn make compounds called postbiotics. Now, there's two components. One, you've mentioned short chain fatty acids. And in particular, that's butyrate, acetate, and propionic. These, we now know, are fuel sources for our cells, and they're actually a precursor for ketone bodies. Uh, Beta-hydroxybutyrate uh, butyrate is a precursor for beta-hydroxybutyrate. But we, we now know is that both butyrate and acetate, acetic acid, vinegar, actually tell mitochondria to uncouple, actually just as effectively as ketones do. And so the other part is they're what are called gaso messengers or gaso transmitters. And something that we would not even think of is that 
certain gases like hydrogen gas, like hydrogen sulfide, these rotten egg smell. Now we know that these are actually signaling molecules in and of themselves that signal our mitochondria to flourish, to protect themselves, to do repair work. So one of the downsides of a traditional ketogenic diet is that most traditional ketogenic diets are completely devoid of fiber uh, because fibers are carbohydrates. And there is some very interesting evidence that I present in the book that you get a shift in your gut microbiome that's far less favorable for long-term good health uh, without that fiber for those bacteria to make postbiotics. And the good news is, in unlocking the keto code, is you can have that fiber and still get the effects that you're looking for in keto, which is great news because you're right. Most people fail a long-term ketogenic diet out of just pure frustration and boredom because yeah. they, yeah. they miss these things, right? Yeah, and that, you know, not all carbohydrates are made equal, obviously. That's so, exactly right. You know, I yeah, think I, you gave I, a, like, there's a brownie and a, and a whatever, a, a leafy kale, green a kale or something. Salad, yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. yeah, they're both carbohydrates. Yeah, and there can be low-carbohydrate, fiber-rich plants um, right. that are absolutely delicious and fulfilling and in every way. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, let's talk a little bit about that. Your uh, revision, if you will, of um, a ketogenic diet, because obviously so many people associate that with a high animal protein, high saturated fat diet. And there's a lot of you know, very intelligent voices out there in the, in the zeitgeist who are proponents of that diet. And certainly there are some, uh, there's a lot of um, mythology around, you know, LDL being the contributor to heart disease, et cetera. And I think that's getting unwound by people like you and other, and other good doctors, but sometimes that gets then conflated and, you know, put into the same suitcase as like, you know, go animal pr protein uh, keto. So I wonder, what is your, you know, uh, brush stroke on on the ideal ketogenic dietary approach? Well, I think first of all, uh, it's exciting to know that uh, MCT oil, medium chain triglycerides, um, which are a saturated fat, um, are actually metabolized and absorbed from our gut totally different than any other fat. Uh, MCTs can actually go through the wall of the gut directly. All other fats have to ride on what are called chylomicrons, a carrier molecule. But MCTs go directly into the liver where they actually stimulate ketone production by the liver. Now, what's exciting about that is you could eat, I'll just make a joke out of it, you could have a tablespoon of MCT oil and eat a fruit salad, which is pure carbohydrate, you will still generate ketones from your liver, despite having a monstrous carbohydrate load. <clears throat> and that actually shocks people. 
But in fact, evidence shows that about a tablespoon, you'll get to a level of ketones that are compatible with a ketogenic diet. Now, one of the real revelations uh, in the book is that most of the ketones, like C8, C10, C6, are named after goat, uh, capric, caprylic. Uh, capris is the Latin word for goat. And so you go, huh, it's funny. Why are these things named after goats? Uh, well, it turns out that goat milk and sheep milk, 30% of all the calories are medium-chain triglycerides. And so then you go, son of a gun, I could have goat cheese or goat yogurt or sheep cheese and sheep yogurt, and I'd be consuming a nice, you know, load of medium chain triglycerides. And what's, this, what's really exciting about that, and I, you know, I go into a chapter of basically why aren't the French dead, uh, because to alluding to you, you know, they, they, three times the amount of cheese that Americans do, three times the amount of butter that we do, and yet they have a third of the coronary artery disease that, that we have. And that's despite what, you know, most of the time they're smoking like fiends, and I go into that as well. So you start looking at, well, what are the effects of, you know, goat cheeses, sheep cheeses, and it becomes, it's like opening up a, a phenomenal box that I don't think my colleague Dan Butner, who wrote the, you know, the Blue Zones, will like to hear. He doesn't like to hear from me anyhow. But <laughs> oh, <come> so one, <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're all good friends, and we're all in this for the same reason. But let me just use a classic example. So, and I we cut this from the book because I got you know I can get too nerdy sometimes, but. There's a fascinating study looking at two of the blue zones, Sardinia and the Nagoya Peninsula of Costa Rica. And they make a big deal that, yeah, they eat a lot of grain products, they eat a lot of beef, both of those areas. And that explains why they're so healthy. Well, it turns out that only the Sardinians who live in the mountainous regions of Sardinia have long health. They have very different health than people who live on the coast. It turns out the mountainous people are goat and sheep herders, and they eat a huge amount of goat and sheep cheese. Mm. When researchers compared what was happening between those two groups, the mountainers and the coastal herders, it was the goat and sheep cheese uncoupling their mitochondria that made all the difference. When you then look at the Nagoya Peninsula of Costa Rica, those people are goat and sheep herders. Now, the rest of Costa Rica is still eating beans and grains, et cetera, et cetera. But what separates this little peninsula is that these guys are goat and sheep herders. And there's a beautiful paper that shows that the difference is the, the goat and sheep cheese that these guys were doing. And it turns out that the MCTs were producing ketones, which in turn signaled their mitochondria to uncouple, make more of themselves and protect themselves. So it's mm. the fact that they were goat and sheep herders that was making the difference. I love it. Yeah. And they're, they're also defying gravity on a regular basis in those places. Very, very true. And all the blue zones uh, are in, in hilly uh, communities. In fact, 
you know, I'm the only nutritionist who spent most of my life in the blue zone, uh, Loma Linda, California. And Loma Linda means beautiful hill. That's right. And my wife is on her way to Costa Rica right now, not to the Nagoya Peninsula, but, um, but that's her happy place. Um, and then, of course, I guess it's worth mentioning that, you know, the grains and beans that those cultures are eating tend to be highly soaked to the point of fermentation. Is that right? That's actually correct. And same way with their grain products. You know, everything is sourdough uh, for one thing. The second thing that, uh, interestingly enough, beans, uh, all legumes, are coated with bacteria that we think were designed when they were soaked to ferment those foods. And you're right, these cultures, uh, and I, I travel Italy extensively looking at this, these cultures soak their beans for days. And so they are actively fermenting the lectins, which are on the outside of the bean. And so unless you know that a culture has figured out how to detoxify the potential plant toxins, it's it's you shouldn't make a generalization that you know beans and grains are great for you well no not the way we eat them it's the way these cultures who over millennia have learned to treat these these potentially problematic foods i eat a lot of pressure cooked beans and i actually now buy uh, there's a company and that i have no relationship to out of Italy called Jovial. And they not only soak their beans, but they pressure cook. So it's like, okay. Yeah, I have uh, here, um, I have some of our, uh, this uh, will only make sense to the people watching the YouTube version of the of the conversation here, but I have our um, sauerkraut that we make here at home. And uh, this has the um, the benefit of being I think I'd call it a prebiotic, a post and a postbiotic, and a live and a, a, a um, the the main biotic, the live bacteria. So and then probiotic, probiotic. Yeah, and I, I think, and as I get into the book, I think one of the fascinating things about fermented foods is not so much the probiotics because most of those actually never make never, it into our yeah, yeah. But it's the postbiotics and the prebiotics that make all the difference in the world. And that's why, as I joke in the book, explains why apple cider vinegar uh, may have you know miraculous health properties because it actually is acetic acid. And acetic acid is a short-chain fatty acid that happens to uncouple mitochondria. So it opens the emergency exit. Yeah. Um, let's talk a little bit about polyphenols, if you don't mind. And um, I've just started learning, I think, from David Sinclair. I think I read it from from yep. his work about xenohormesis, which I find to be fascinating. Essentially, the consumption of stressed uh, plants and why they have particular phytochemicals versus some GMO plant or something like that. So um, maybe unpack the value of polyphenols. And if you do want to touch on the xenohormetic plants, I think that'd be fascinating. Yeah. So it's, um, I've taken this one step uh, from David, who's a very good friend of mine. Um, so, and this actually gets back to uncoupled mitochondria. So plants, 
uh, have mitochondria that are called chloroplasts, but they're, they're basically mitochondria in reverse. Uh, so they take sunlight, particularly photons, uh, and combine that with uh, carbon dioxide and produce oxygen and glucose uh, and carbohydrates. And so they, so just like our mitochondria, oxygen is both the most important thing, but the most damaging thing. In plants, sunlight is the most important thing, but also the most damaging thing. So sunlight is to them what oxygen is to our mitochondria. So they have a defense system against damaging their mitochondria, their chloroplasts, which happen to be polyphenols. And polyphenols are profoundly effective at uncoupling mitochondria. And the more stress a plant is in, the higher it is in elevation, the closer to the sun, the more uh, heat or cold stress, the less nutrient stress of its roots, the more polyphenols are produced as a signaling system to tell their chloroplasts to protect themselves at all costs. And you're right, great winemakers have known this. Uh, I've learned this in olive production. Uh, the polyphenols are produced from stress. And these in general are the brightly colored uh, colors that we associate with orange and yellow and reds and purples and blues. And what happens is, and oh, by the way, melatonin is produced by plants. And when I first learned this, I go, well, wait a minute. Melatonin, a plant doesn't need to go to sleep. What's the deal? <laughs> and it turns out the plant produces melatonin to protect its chloroplast, to repair them. So what's really cool is, and this is kind of like the circle of life, yeah. when we when we eat plants that have been protecting their mitochondria and we eat their polyphenols, number one, we don't absorb polyphenols very well, but our gut bacteria love them. They use them as a prebiotic. And then they're transmuted into postbiotics, polyphenols that we can then absorb. And those polyphenols then uncouple our mitochondria. And that's what's so cool. It's so and, cool. Yeah. And I'll, I'll just give you the best example, which is it was shocking. Um, back in World War I, it was noted that uh, munition factory workers in France and Germany were profoundly skinny. And they, they ate huge amounts of food, couldn't keep weight off. And they ran at temperature. And nobody knew why this was. Subsequently, in the 20s and early 30s, they realized that what was happening was that these guys had a really accelerated basal metabolic rate, burning of oxygen. And so a couple of doctors at Stanford says, hey, I wonder what the compound is that was doing this. Well, it was discovered that it was called 2,4-dinitrophenol. Phenol. Hmm. The word phenol. And it's called DNP. So they actually wrote prescriptions for DNP for weight loss. And it was a miracle weight loss drug. Um, 
Over 100,000 prescriptions for DMP were written in the 1930s to Americans. And it was miraculous. People who had a little bit of DNP would lose a pound a week. The more you took, the faster you lost. Some people were losing five pounds a week. I mean, you talk about a miracle. Unfortunately, there was a downside. Uh, the more they took, the more temperature they ran. It began to affect their thyroid. It caused cataracts. And this was before cataract surgery. So as I joke, you know, this weight loss drug is going to make you blind so you can't see how good you look in your new dress. Um, <laughs> and it, at high doses, it actually caused death. What we now know, a few, so the FDA banned it in one of its first official acts in 1938. Uh, what we now know is that DNP was the first known mitochondrial uncoupler. And at super high doses, it uncoupled so many mitochondria that you could no longer make enough energy to stay alive. And you died. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, yeah not, not a good idea. And so not that's where I... No. So that's where I get the idea of the Goldilocks effect of polyphenols, ketones. You want to find that sweet spot where you tell mitochondria to waste fuel, you tell them to make more of themselves, and you tell them to repair themselves, but you won't, you don't want to go past that point. And the book is kind of a guidebook. On, okay, here's how to do it. Yeah. Okay. Last thing here, I have, um, I have some red wine. This is some organic red wine here. Um, I, you know, we just touched on xenohormesis. I believe vintners and winemakers, they specifically and purposefully try to stress their grapes. And Correct. I believe um, if you really want to maximize your polyphenol intake, I believe Pinot Noir is the most stressed, but who knows? Um, yeah, in the bit. United States, uh, the highest concentration of, poly of polyphenols is in Pinot Noir. That's true. And um, this has obviously given rise to resveratrol as uh, perhaps the world's most famous polyphenol. Can you talk a little bit about res resveratrol, its, its benefits, and can we really drink enough wine to get <laughs> the positive I, effects? I, of yeah, it? I keep trying, but you know, David would tell you you'd have to uh, take uh, drink 500 bottles of wine a day uh, to get the adequate amount of resveratrol to um, to get the sirtuin genes activated. But the point is well made that these polyphenols, uh, David comes at them from a sirtuin point of gene activation. But what I propose is that what we're really doing by activating sirtuin, sirtuin, is to uncouple mitochondria. So I think we're both saying the same thing in a slightly different way. Uh, we used to say that, you know, this, this caused boromesis, that that which doesn't kill you make you stronger. But I think the, the unifying factor of like xenohormesis is that son of a gun, you know, the, all these polyphenols that were being used for the plant to protect its mitochondria, uh, when we eat it, uh, we'll get that benefit. Uh, but no, you, you, you can't drink enough wine. Uh, we can try. We can try. But you're right. So biodynamic, which goes beyond organic, is even more beneficial in producing more polyphenol. Interestingly enough, wine 
and olive oil, which have great polyphenols, also have a lot of melatonin in them. And there's some suggestion that the benefits of the Mediterranean diet may be because of all the high melatonin content in olive oil and fruits and vegetables and wine. That may be the influence that we should pay attention to. And I delve in a lot that melatonin is really should not be considered a sleep hormone, but something much more powerful. Yeah. Um, let's talk a little bit about animal protein. Um, certainly, obviously, keto is highly associated with animal protein. Um, and we touched upon this just briefly is that we seem to be uh, untangling a lot of mythology around saturated fat and exogenous LDL being a major contributor to Evil. heart disease. Yeah. yeah. And that we're actually under we're discovering or uncovering the root causes of heart disease in a, in a more, um, in a clearer way. That being said, where do you stand on eating animal protein? Well, I've, you know, in all my books, I've tried to make sure that people know in general, I'm a veg aquarian. I eat mostly vegetables. And on the weekends, uh, my wife and I uh, will have a wild shellfish. Um, do we ever indulge in grass-fed, grass-finished beef? Yeah, about once every three months. So we'll share a six-ounce steak. But I think, and I've made this argument in a lot of my books, there's multiple reasons why I think it's wise to limit animal protein, particularly beef, lamb, and pork. One of those is that these animals have a sugar molecule in their blood vessels called NU5G. NU5G we don't have. We have NU5AC. And the two molecules are identical except, I mean, the two compounds are identical with the exception of one molecule each. And there's very strong evidence that many of us develop an autoantibody to our own blood vessel lining when we eat NU5GC-containing foods. And it's, if you like the autoantibody theory of heart disease, which I like as a heart surgeon and cardiologist, to me it makes sense that this association between meat eating and coronary artery disease may have nothing to do with LDL, but it may have to do with this inflammatory attack. So that's number one. Uh, chicken and fish and shellfish contain NU5AC, so they're perfectly safe. On the other hand, animal proteins and animal fats, thanks to the work of the Cleveland Clinic, has shown that it produces a fairly nasty compound called TMAO, which is really good at damaging blood vessels. And there's more work that shows it's probably really good at damaging your brain and your kidneys. So that's, and we've shown that you don't get this uh, on a vegetarian diet. And fun fact, the more polyphenols you eat, the more the polyphenols actually paralyze the enzymatic process in bacteria 
so that you could have your meat and not produce DMAO. Mm. And that's actually one of the theories why the Mediterranean diet, which has, you know, a fairly interesting proportion of animal protein, um, don't seem to have the effects of TMAO production. So once again, polyphenols to the rescue. Third factor, which I think is fascinating, uh, we know that tumors uh, contain significant amounts of new 5GC. And there's very good experimental evidence that tumor cells use new 5GC to cloak themselves from our immune system so that they're basically invisible. We do not manufacture new 5GC, which means that tumor cells, these are human tumor cells, have to acquire it from the diet. And that may explain the association between red meat eating and increased cancer risk. Again, I hate the idea of association and causation, and I have a whole chapter on why I kind of hate that. But these all, all this circumstantial evidence um, makes me mostly a plant eater. Yeah, are you um, uh, are you interested in the sensitivity of the mTOR pathway to? Oh uh, yeah, don't get me started. Okay, um, <laughs> that's yeah, the whole thing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. The, the the third reason is that animal proteins in general have far more of the amino acids that stimulate the mTOR pathway. Plant proteins in general have far less. And in a lot of my other books, I've shown that, you know, there's very good work showing reduction in animal protein lowers mTOR. The way we clinically measure that is insulin-like growth factor, Mm -hmm. IGF-1. And I've had a number of patients who we've, they volunteered to remove animal protein from the diet for a couple of months and their, their insulin-like growth factors dropped 50 points just by doing that. But there's other ways to do that. And one of those, which I profile in this book and I have before, is intermittent fasting or time-restricted eating. And you can get the same benefits on dropping uh, signaling to mTOR just by reducing the time period of eating. Yeah. Quite dramatic. Yeah, the time-restricted eating is I, perhaps a whole other episode um, yep. at some point because it's just fascinating. Uh, I'll ask you just one last question about animal protein and the gut. So what are some of the downstream impacts of animal protein by the time it actually gets to the colon on your microbiome? Yeah, that's actually a great question. And there's some, there's some very good work looking particularly at this postbiotic called hydrogen sulfide. And we used to think that hydrogen sulfide was a toxic gas, but it turns out that there's this sweet spot with hydrogen sulfide. And hydrogen sulfide in the right amount is a phenomenal signaling molecule. And as I profile in the book, the right amount of hydrogen sulfide probably protects us from atherosclerosis. On the other hand, too much hydrogen sulfide has the opposite effect. It actually causes atherosclerosis, but more importantly, 
It's also a signaling molecule in the wall of the gut. And too much hydrogen sulfide damages colonic cells. And that may explain the association of heavy meat eating with an increased risk of colon cancer. So we're always looking for the Goldilocks rule. We're, we're trying to find that sweet spot, not too little, not too much, just right. So, you know, once again, choose your poisons, I guess, but choose them carefully. Yeah, I think that that is a, a good message in a culture that seems to constantly sanctify binary opposition. <laughs> Uh, in our diets and our politics. Um, I think finding what uh, the Buddha might call the middle way um, may be the most radical but intelligent path. And uh, I think, you know, you do such a great job at explaining mechanism such that people can really uh, understand and then adopt the behaviors um, in their own life that allow them to find that balance. Um, and more and more, I am, uh, believe that happiness is synonymous with health. Um, and really, as I kind of try to define happiness, I always end up with the definition of health. <laughs> and, um, and yeah, you know, your work obviously just speaks for itself, but I think uh, unlo unlocking the keto code will just continue to really help people find um, their Goldilocks zone and, uh, and that place where they can balance and find happiness. So I'm uh, very grateful for your work, Dr. Gundry, and uh, I, I, hope you, that we can, I hope we can do this uh, in person sometime. Yeah, next time let's do it in person. Thank you. All right. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Dr. Stephen Gundry. To keep abreast of Dr. Gundry's work and whereabouts, check out drgundry.com. That's drgundry.com. And look out for his new book, Unlocking the Keto Code. Now, if you enjoy this show, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. If you're a regular listener, you know how much effort gets put into the creation of this show, and we really do our best to keep sponsors to a minimum. This is not one of those shows, nor will it ever be one, where I spend the first 15 minutes on ads. So... If you're looking for a way to support our efforts, the best way is to subscribe to Commune. You'll access more than 100 courses featuring the top authors and thought leaders in the world. Now, you can check it out for 14 days for free at onecommune.com slash trial. And of course, feel free to reach out to me directly anytime at jeffk at onecommune.com. I read every single email that comes in. And I'd like to thank the folks that make this show possible including Jacob Lau, Megan Stone, Ruby Foster, Emma Fretz, Silvana Alcala, and Ryan Tillotson. And that's all from the commune for this week. My name is Jeff Krasnow, and I am here for you. <laughs>